This is The Guardian. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly, a one-all draw between Germany and Spain in a game that felt twice as fast as anything we've seen before. A very un-Morata-like finish from Alvaro, cancelled out by Nicholas Fulkrug. No, me neither. The group is incredibly tight because Japan somehow lost to Costa Rica, who barely had a touch in the opposition box. We'll analyse whether the Japanese are just too tidy to be a real football force. Meanwhile, joy for Morocco as they beat Belgium and take control of their destiny in Group F. The Belgians are old, they look tired. The Croatians look tired for about 25 minutes as Canada tried to F them. Alfonso Davis powering home a header, but eventually Modric, Kovacic and co. woke up. They always do. Also today, there are so many pods, some of you are dreaming about us. There's Kevin De Bruyne's mustard sandwich, your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Nicky Bandini, hello. Hi. Hello, Ed Aarons. Hi, Max. And here for just part one, Archie Rintut. Hi, Max. What are you laughing at? Kevin De Bruyne's mustard sandwich. Oh, yeah. Well, we're not getting to that in your bit, uh, but we will do. Okay, then Spain won, Germany won. Uh, Before we talk to the panel, Sid Lowe uh, is at the ground at full time. We've only got you for two minutes. Such an exclusive moment with Sid Lowe. Um, How did you find that game? Uh, I found, I thought there was a, one of the things that Luis Enrique had said was that Germany are the team that are most like Spain. And for a lot of this game, I felt, yeah, most like them, but not as good as them. Uh, you know, the, the, it's, it's all well and good being like Spain, but if you're playing against Spain, maybe you shouldn't be like Spain. Um, and yet I will, I will, I did feel that they made life more difficult for Spain than some teams have done. They put a pressure on Spain that made Busquets and Carvajal and Simon looked quite uncomfortable at times, I thought, which, which of course didn't happen in the Costa Rica game. We, we discussed that, hadn't we, about whether we thought Spain were brilliant or Costa Rica just didn't apply any pressure to them. Germany did. And there were moments in this game where, where I felt Spain were uncomfortable. And then, of course, with the free substitutions, I think ultimately Germany deserved that draw. I think ultimately they created sufficient chances. They made life difficult enough for Spain. I thought Spain lost control of it later on. Um, and I felt that we saw some of the flaws that we've seen in Spain before. You know, that you can, you can, you can sometimes feel like you're in control of the game, but it can, it can escape you quite quickly. And it turned out that Germany did have a number nine, Archie, which uh, everyone said they didn't have. Nicholas Fulcrum. Uh, yeah, we'll get on to yeah, we'll get on to Nicholas Fulkrug, whoever the hell he is, in, in just a second. Um, uh, I thought Morata, actually, you know, that was quite an un-Morata-like finish, Sid. You know, calm, cool, collected, all the things I just don't expect from Alvaro Morata. Yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose one thing you may, might say in that, uh, Max, is that it was a finish taken first time. So it wasn't one where he has to think about it. It's one where he makes the movement, he takes it first time, finishes it brilliantly. It's the kind of movement that you... You know, the player that I most think of with that kind of finish actually is a guy called Paco Alcázar, who you may or may not remember, played briefly in I Germany, do, was brilliant yeah. in Germany for about six months and then sort of wasn't. And he was this guy who basically did one thing brilliantly, which was to move to the first post. Uh, what do you call that in English? Near post, isn't it? To near post, run yes. to the near post and, and finish first time. And it, you're right, it wasn't a very Morata thing. And funny enough, I thought he was put on the pitch partly to do the Morata things because the, the, the assumption that Germany would step up, the assumption there would be space behind and that Morata would run through onto those kind of chances, but it was a different kind of chance. It was very much more a constructed chance, very much more a sort of Spanish-style chance. And and he took it brilliantly. Um, another German connection, by the way. I, I, I don't know how it looked to you lot on the telly, but I thought that Spain's best player was was a German-based player, and that was Danny Oldemann. Mm. Yeah, he had a great game. I mean, he had that wonderful strike, which I thought Neuer actually did really well, considering how hard he smashed the ball. I wondered about Gavi and Pedri. They, they were sort of... They weren't anonymous, but, but, but they... They had a much tougher time much today, tougher. didn't they? Obviously. Yeah, I mean, exactly. On one, on one level, that's entirely natural. Um, and, and I think as well, the, the nature of the way that Germany play, not just the level of Germany, but the nature of the way they play. I thought Pedri started brilliantly. I thought for about 20 minutes, there was a couple of little glides where he turned full circle away from pressure. And you thought, there, that's the Pedri that we, that we know. But then he found it increasingly difficult to get into the game. I, I, I agree with you. I felt that Gavi found it harder to, to get into the game. And, and Spain didn't quite have the the degree of control that that maybe they would like or at least the degree of involvement of of those two. Um, I think it is natural. I, I think it's not necessarily a problem, but of course it does it it, it does 
pose a kind of, if you like, a different set of questions to to those posed by the first game. And finally, Sid, um, Spain would presumably rather Japan went through than Germany, right? Yeah, you're, you're going to ask the biscotto question, aren't you? I am, yes. Yeah, I think we're all going to be asking that over the next few days. Um, I don't think it's in Spain's nature. I don't think it's their way of doing it. Um, you know, a draw, by the way, might not be... Enough. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm going, to, I'm going to do the maths now and get it wrong. But a draw might not be enough for Japan. So if Spain decide, yeah, let's have a draw, Japan might not be able to, of course, because they don't know that a draw is enough. So I think the ingredients... To make that biscotto, uh, which presumably are what? Egg, flour, sugar, uh, I'm not sure what else, margarine. The ingredients to make that biscotto may not actually be there. Sid, go away now. Thank you. I, I will do. Bye. Cheers, uh, Sid Lowe, uh, who has to do some writing or something or just doesn't really want to be on a pod for, for that long. Okay then, Archie. Uh, Nicholas Fulkrug. Um, I mean, what a hit. The ball stayed ball. Um, for those that don't know a lot about him, obviously I do, can you... Can you tell us more about this yep. man? What What do you know about him then, Max? Well, I know he's called Nicholas. So <laughs> um, <laughs> he played for Werder Bremen. I did Google him very b- briefly just before this uh, pod. Yeah, uh, Nikki, yeah. your hands up. Nikki, you have more info. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I have some great info. I think everyone's seen this now because people have gone and Googled him and Wikipedia searched him. But his Wikipedia entry is a wonder. So I just sort of want to relay the information that was. On his Wikipedia page at the time when lots of journalists were clearly doing it, I got Jonathan Norcroft popped up in my timeline and I opened his tweet. And yes, the the personal life section of, of Nicholas Fulkrug's biography. Fulkrug's nickname is Lucker, German for gap because of his front teeth. He has a wife called Lisa. Following an accident at Werder Bremen's training ground, he once ended up with a hospitalised with a tooth of a teammate wedged in his forehead. Wow. Yeah, that did happen. <laughs> <laughs> forgot about that. And then he, he listens to Survivor's Eye of the Tiger for motivation. That's the full Nicholas Of Fulker. course he does. How German. That's so brilliant, isn't it? So so Marco Arnautovic was the one who gave him that uncharitable nickname because he's been happy about not having that, that tooth, um, which you can see um, pr- pretty clearly whenever he does a nice grin. I thought we were saying Marco Arnautovic left a tooth in his forehead. I was like, well, that wouldn't put... Past Marco <laughs> it's also not the most creative uh, uh, nickname, is it? Gap. It's 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 pretty straightforward. Well, l- l- let let's yeah. not cast any aspersions on on, on German humour, shall we? Uh, look, N- Nicholas Fulkrug is is somebody who has long been plagued by by long term injuries, and the question was for me: d- Did he have the requisite quality? to play at such a level. He had been, he's already been the top scoring uh, German in the Bundesliga this season. And tonight he answered that emphatically because it wasn't just about the way that he, he took that goal. Germany looked so much better after the substitutions, which is, I think, one of the biggest wins for Hansi Flick out of this game as well, because you had... Klosterman, who came on for Kira, carrying the ball forward at right back, playing it into Zane, who came on for Gundogan, I think it would have been, or Muller, playing it, p- playing it to Jamal Musiala, who uh, achieved some redemption for what had happened a few minutes earlier. And then he plays it to Fulkrug. To, to be fair to Musiala as well, I don't think Fulkrug gets the ball unless he does that funky little touch. I agree. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's him either. So I'm, I'm, I'm giving that redemption uh, status for him given also how well he played in the rest of the game. Yeah, I thought he was brilliant. Yeah, um, uh, a magic moment for Nicholas Fulkrug and one that also, in a time when the German national team is not particularly well-liked here at home, I think it very much, having somebody from Werder Bremen who are a likeable club, I would say, in Germany, and particularly in comparison to where Bayern are after their three million titles in a row, I I think it, it will do some good for the team. Now the question is, he's going to start against Costa Rica, right? I would start him, especially against Costa Rica. I mean, I thought, Ed, I thought it was a brilliant game of football and it felt to me like it was sort of at times two all the other games I've seen so far. I don't know if it's just because I was expecting 
you know, two heavyweights to be good. And maybe there have been other games that were this relentless, but it it really felt like you were watching a high level game of football. Yeah, it was a very, a very high technical level. and But it, it really took until Spain scored, I thought, for it to really become more dramatic. And obviously Germany and Hansi Flick was, was forced into it, really, to bring the big man on. And it was just it paid paid dividends. I just love the way that he he took command of that situation for Musiala because I think Musiala was trying to control it himself, and then he he took it away from him and, and, and smashed it in in the net. And yeah, I think he's got to start in the next game for Germany. He made such a big he made such a big difference to them. Uh, but I was very impressed with their midfield. Their midfield really coped well with with Spain. They 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 went toe to toe with with Gavi and Pedri and really negated them going forward a little bit. And it yeah, it, it wasn't until Morata came on for a bit of a period that Spain looked quite dangerous. But yeah. There was one um uh, there was one full Krug header, wasn't it? I think was it on Jordi Alba where he sort of he managed to land on him twice and then Jordi Alba just went off. He was just like I can't I can't be up against this enormous brute of a man. Uh, Nikki, what did you make of the game? Yeah, I just wanted to come back on full Krug actually and um the Musiala chance that was sort of mentioned because I think it was sort of really fun how that goal happened because Musiala, I think in the position he was in, we're talking about the chance about, was it 10 minutes before when he's clean through on goal? I think it's fair enough to say you can back yourself there and take the shot on, but Fulcrook was inside him. And so you could have just played that ball square. And, and I think a lot of strikers would have been screaming at him and thinking, why aren't you playing that ball square? So I thought it was sort of fun the way that the goal in the end happens. Yes, Archie's completely right. Musiala's role was really important in the ball getting to him. But it did feel a bit like Fulcrook just con- took control of that situation. was like, I'm having this one. You've had your one. <laughs> I'm going to take this one. It did have big gimme that vibes. <laughs> like, this is how you do it, son. I, you, may be, you may be 19 and lighting the world up right now. But if you want to sh- if, if learn how to finish, yeah, watch, watch this. Watch this drive effectively because he hit it so hard as well. Like, it was... Yeah, people people over here have like the one of the standing debates is where's the number nine? Why don't we play a striker up front? And that was a pretty emphatic answer to that. The question is, who does Flick leave out to accommodate him? In my mind, one of Thomas Muller or Serge Nabry, given how the way the team looked at the end, and I'd, I'd say that Thomas Muller needs to go on the bench even if he is a trusted lieutenant of uh of, of Hansi Flicks I think that what one thing this side is crying out for is balance and too often Hansi Flick maybe leans on the well how can I fit all the players who played for me at Bayern into this team when actually that was yeah you know, sure, sure they were dominant against Japan for a long time but I don't think that you place any kind of the same value on that game as you do on those final 20 minutes. Sure, those players coming on are fresher, but Leroy Sane as well looked excellent after coming on. The only question marks uh, apart from that for me are in defence, where Nicolas Zula making a, another goal-costing mistake uh, in terms of not being tight enough to Alvaro Morata and not really even tracking his run. I thought he had a good game, though. I mean, that is quite an important moment, but I actually was quite impressed with him today. That's the thing, Max. If if you you could have probably said the same about the Japan game, but he lets the attacker come inside for the first goal, which uh, Bastian Schweinsteiger said was a uh, a a cardinal error, and then for the second goal, you're holding everyone else up offside. So. The Those question details is, who, kind of matter, I guess, as a defender, don't they? Yeah, in, exactly. In I mean, I thought also that Spain's goal came from them working out that they were not getting any luck down David Raum's side in the first half. And it felt like there should have been some sort of air traffic controller this way over <laughs> to the right-hand side, given given how Tilo Kera has, has also looked. He was okay, but... Like it for me, it was no surprise that Spain looked at their most dangerous when they went down that side, and yeah, that's still there's still weaknesses there for Germany. Interesting, Ed, isn't it with with Spain? And actually, like, it's only France so far that have won both games, and and that is really telling, isn't it? Because Spain looked so good, and actually, Spain, I thought Spain were dominant today for large parts of this game, 
But even still, it was one of those fine margins games where, you know, Murata has that chance late on, Musiala has that chance late on. It could have gone either way. But it is interesting that there's only one team that have won twice so far. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think it's the intensity of the games and how, you know, how quickly they've come um, after the first game. Everybody, you know, builds up to that game. And in the second game, it's really hard to lift yourself to, to that level. Um, you know, especially with, with uh, I mean, I know they've come straight from, you know, playing in domestic leagues as well. So, yeah, it's making for a really interesting final round of group uh, matches, isn't it? Because, you know, only only a couple of teams eliminated so far and it's really going to be who recovers best. And also squad size is going to be very important, I think, you know, going into the last round of matches. I mean, not, not that many suspensions, really, because, you know, not had many red cards or anything, but think who has uh, the teams that can use their substitutes best and, and recover best from the from this round of matches are, are going to get through. I also thought, Nicky, that I don't know I don't know who from Spain really shone out for you. Sid said Danny Olmo, because I was watching this game thinking, wow, Spain are better than Germany. But Musiala is the player that I was excited the most when he got the ball. Yeah, it was, it was interesting listening to Sid, um, you know, it's his sort of perspective from inside the stadium and and I agree that like the problem is the bar set like up here after game number one and so you think it's got to be up here all the time but when Sib was saying maybe Spain didn't have as much control and you look at the final yeah. possession stats and they still had 65% of the ball so when you talk about not having control it feels like with Spain the sliding scale goes from does the opponent touch the ball at all to do they touch it a third of the time you know like it's not like you're sort of not having control of the game the issue for Spain was just they didn't look like they really were doing much with it for a lot of the time, which was the big difference from from the first round. And, and that is sort of the point about these two teams being slightly mirrored in that they have the same problem, which is, okay, we can, in Germany's case, they didn't hold it in this game, but they might in another game hold the ball a lot. But who's it going to? Who's going to make make the, where are we ending this move? And I think that Murata, who obviously Sid already talked about, is is the, the one who solved the problem in this game. I do think there's something to be said for the, the nature of that goal and and for all his problems just I, I don't know that that just struck me as a sort of goal that is very simple in the head of a striker who's played for Real Madrid Atletico Madrid and Juventus because it's just attacking the opposed which is what we talked about but that's that's attacking 101 like that's that's it's not like something dramatic but it's something that if you've done it enough times you just know to make that run I don't know I, I still thought Pedri was was pretty good I still thought the midfield controlled the game for a lot of the of the, the match I thought Rodri in that false number I don't know whatever you want to call the false centre-back role almost was was good as well but in the end on both sides the players who caught your eye were the ones who actually sucked the ball in the net I just wanted to say that there was definitely a little bit of South London in that skill that uh, Jamal Musiala did to get uh, to get the booking for Busquets amazing quick feet and uh, yeah I mean his progression actually from Chelsea, Chelsea, he wasn't particularly standout in the youth team until towards the end, and when he obviously went off to off to Germany. But I mean, he's such an amazing player. He's an absolute all rounder, isn't he? I think you're right. They're not quite getting the the best out of him in the uh, in in the team. That perhaps a bit of tweaking for his position, and he can he can be absolutely devastating. And obviously, needs to finish a little bit better than he has been so far because in the in the first game that unbelievable dribble and that shot over the bar I mean that would have been a, one of a classic World Cup goal but um yeah I mean that that will come with with age I'm sure it's not a bad finish right because he, he still kept it on target but it's the first time where I've thought oh he, he really kind of should have scored there and and to your point about uh, about about the South London thing I had the chance to ask him about you know where he got his dribbling from earlier this season. And because uh, reminiscent of Jaden Sancho's cage football ability. And I asked him and he's like, actually, it was it was mainly just dribbling through cones in the garden. I was like, what? Because <laughs> it, 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 it just having that ability just doesn't. Yeah. As, as you say. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's it's all around the world, isn't it? People, yeah, just he just he, he's got that natural gliding ability and uh, with, with the ball as well when he runs with it. It's just. It's a joy to watch, isn't it? Yeah, it's an absolute star in the making. All right, then. So, look, Group E looks like this. Spain are top with four points from two games. Japan second uh, with three points. Costa Rica also have three points. Germany have one point. So, if Germany win and Spain win, they both go through. If Japan beats Spain, they'll top the group, Japan, uh, on six points. Spain will probably progress on goal difference if Germany win. 
but Costa Rica are through if they beat Germany. So, I mean, he could have an utterly ridiculous, cannot see uh, Costa Rica beating Spain, can you? I mean, uh, sorry, they're playing Germany. Only. Um, I mean, you can't see Costa Rica beating Germany. I really can't see them beating Spain. Really? No, it feels like <laughs> history tells, maybe recency bias, but I just got a feeling Spain have got the edge on Costa Rica. Anyway, it could be an extraordinary uh, last day. And uh, I guess after that first result, the fact that Germany can still get through um, is, a, is a real positive from this. And that'll do for part one. We'll look at the Japan-Costa Rica game uh, in part two, briefly, because it wasn't very good. Um, uh, and Archie, you can uh, you can leave now. Your t- your work is done. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Cheers, guys. We'll be back in a second. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. So as we mentioned in Group E, the other game was Japan nil, Costa Rica one. And I don't know about you, Ed, but this goes down for me as least interesting game i mean the result is interesting uh, but but the game itself was incredibly hard work i have to admit i didn't watch it live but i have i think the I best way to you. watch this was by was was via the highlights how long uh, were they so how long yeah. were they it's about eight uh, yeah they, they were very long most, most of them were a replay of the goal which they were with the goalkeeper not covering himself in in glory in fact the whole of the japanese defense really not covering itself in in glory but was this maybe a question of, a, of of them being a bit knackered from their exploits against Germany? Maybe just and Costa Rica obviously really embarrassed by that that defeat against Spain and couldn't let that happen again. And you know, they're a very experienced team. Um, so yeah, it's really thrown the group open, hasn't it? I mean, Japan must be kicking themselves though because it's yeah left them in, in quite a difficult position now. It felt self inflicted to me um, when you leave out players like. Um, Minamino, Mitoma, Tomiyasu, like there, there were a lot of players that have, you thought like, really, that's not, that's not someone you want in the starting 11 for your, like, literally like your, your qualifying game. Like if you win this game, you go through. It was an odd team selection um, from, from Japan to begin with. Look, the, the loss in, in lots of ways feels ridiculous because it was literally Costa Rica's first shot of the entire tournament. And I think even more extraordinary for the fact that Keisha Fuller is right-footed and scored it with his left foot. So like their first shot of the whole tournament. It very much looked like a swinger left foot as well, didn't it? Like it's probably the first time he's kicked it with his left foot. But that, you know, that sort of felt like one of those sort of ridiculous moments that you cause for yourselves. To say this is an Italian, the same as letting North Macedonia off the hook by not scoring (laughs) in a million chances against them. When they take their one shot, you know it's going to go in. That's how that's going to go. If you don't take the initiative and do something about it, then you're going to get punished. And, And I felt like... The team selection from the start seemed like an, an odd one um, for Japan, but then um, they certainly got the maximum level of punishment, again, by their own hand, because it was the goalkeeper and and also the, the ball being given away in the first place. Yeah, and that goalkeeper, I mean, I, I, I was trying to work it out, Ed. Does he just jump too soon? Like, he feels yeah, like he's jumped. So. And that is, I mean, I suppose yeah. he had nothing to do, but like you should, you should as an elite level keeper know when to when to jump shouldn't you? yeah it, it looks easy being a goalkeeper sometimes but i think it's because their footwork is so good most of the time they make it look really easy i you know that getting in position early and he he was just completely flummoxed by it wasn't he the, the flight of the ball and so you say it wasn't like the purest strike into the corner i think he just misjudged it and just yeah flapped it sort of it was it was pretty sunday league not the, not the best thing for Japan, but I think yeah, they, I, I wasn't. I, I was probably one. Of, I, I, you know, it was obviously a shock, but I wasn't that surprised that they beat Germany because they, they you know, they they were a pretty consistent team at the World Cup. You know, if you look over the last few tournaments, they normally get through the group, so they're very good technically. But this will be a massive disappointment because you know they've really opened the door now. Um, so we'll, we'll see how they get on, but they you know they've definitely got the talent to get through. Joe Cole in the post-match, Nicky, said Japan are too nice and used the example of them tidying the changing rooms as the example of being too nice. Uh, do you Would you agree or disagree with that? The list of reasons why teams have supposedly lost at this World Cup. Germany lost because they did a protest. Did Belgium lose because they, they didn't do a protest after <laughs> saying they were going to do a protest? Um, Japan lost because they're too nice because they tidied the changing rooms. But of course, they beat Germany in the first game, so... It's nonsense. It's ridiculous. Um, sorry. <laughs> the reasons that people come up with for them to have lost, they lost because they didn't have 
any sort of courage in their in their approach I thought tactically in the first half they didn't have courage in their team selection I thought it was just like, like I said really strange choice to leave out and Asana I've got an Asana was on the bench in the first game but after he scored that great goal not to give him the chance to start but in the end I, I, I saw a set Costa Rica um had the fewest touches in the opposition box for a winning team in a World Cup match on record. So two touches in the in the uh, Japanese box. Wow. So mm-hmm. it was also just a dreadful game of football in which one person did one thing that settled it. Yeah, and so we probably don't need to talk about it uh, too much. They did tidy up, just for the record. I'm pretty sure they tidied up afterwards. Um, I, I wonder, I mean, what, what we don't know is, you know, how did England leave the dressing room after 66? You know, what did Brazil do? In seven, like, 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 did they leave it like a total shit tip? How did Argentina leave it in '86? It was absolutely strewn with ticker tape everywhere, wasn't it? In, in, in yeah, exactly. It would just be 78, funny. Seventy-eight would have been absolutely the dressing room. Dressing room, you couldn't. You <laughs> open the door and like there was ticker tape falling the toilet, out yeah. of it. Um, you know, until we find that out, Nikki, we don't know actually if if Joe Cole's onto something. All right, then on to Group F: uh, Belgium nil, Morocco two. What a win for Morocco! Their third ever at a World Cup against the FIFA-ranked second-best team in the world. I would severely question that ranking. Um, but probably their greatest World Cup moment, thoroughly deserved. Ed, you cover a lot of African football. I mean, it was it was brilliant for them, wasn't it? Yeah, it was absolutely fantastic, fantastic result. And I think it's something that's been coming, actually, for Morocco for, for quite a while. They've, they've really flattered to deceive in the last few AFCONs, especially. They've gone in with, you know, one of the, well, well a star-studded squad, of players that everybody, you know, a lot of players that everybody knows at top European clubs. And this has not happened for for whatever reason. But since uh, the new the new manager's taken over, it's just been fantastic. He, they yet to concede a goal under him. And today was really, yeah, they're sort of coming of age in front of loads of supporters who packed out that stadium, made it a, a, a great atmosphere, even though, you know, it's 7,000 kilometres from Morocco to Qatar. But obviously, uh, uh they they decided to follow their country really closely. And I think that they're they're really onto something. That they there's a good chance of them getting out of the group now. Obviously, they just need a, a draw against Canada. Um and you you'd hope that they'd be able to do that. And then who knows after that, they've got a really solid team. Obviously, as I said, don't concede many goals. And uh Ziyech has has added a bit of craft to them in, in attack and and uh but I mean T- uh, Courtois obviously is gonna have night- nightmares about that. That, well, both those free kicks, one of which he got away with, and then the the second one, which you know broke the deadlock. Um, but it was just such a rare, you know, rare to see him make make mistakes. He was so good against Canada, and uh, he's he's probably you know the best goalkeeper in the world, as most people would acknowledge. I think, but uh, Morocco really tested them and and got what they deserved. Yeah, I mean, when they scored that second goal, Nicky, as well. I mean, this is sort of what World Cups about. We talked about yesterday about Australia's third ever winner a World Cup, and I think. I think when I come from, you know, from a sort of English perspective, you don't really think about World Cups and the importance of just getting a goal or getting a win. But just when they just all bundled and the managers running up the touchline, you just think, and in front of thousands of fans as well, it was just really lovely to see. I mean, it's not an original point to sort of say that I think one of the upsides of it being in Qatar, we've talked plenty about the downsides and there are lots, but it is sort of closer for a part of the world that hasn't had a World Cup closer and, and Morocco is in that sort of group of countries. So it is physically a lot closer to it. I think culturally um, there's been that sort of feeling that this is a World Cup for a part of the world that, that hasn't always been having that opportunity. And and I think, you know, for me, the moment was seeing afterwards, actually, um, I think it was Hakimi and Saviri were both sort of having little moments with their mums. And I just thought, made me think actually of of Balotelli at the Euros after his goal against Germany. And, and he sort of went to his mum and they had that moment together. And yeah, that's what it's about. It's people. Like World Cup has always been about people. And and it's about the fans who are there and, and making the, the stadiums feel alive. And the Morocco fans definitely made that stadium feel really alive this game. And it's about the individuals playing in these games. I mean, Hakimi, I think, was was born in Madrid, but his parents are Moroccan. He made that choice to play for for Morocco, and and you know, he's he's a fantastic footballer. It's not news to to, to say that Hakimi's a, a fantastic footballer, but perhaps if it would have been, I suppose, more competition for places, but a more sort of straightforward path to winning games at a World Cup, if you'd taken a different choice, if he'd played for Spain if that choice he made but he hasn't he's gone he's he's been able to enjoy this moment which he can clearly mount men's thing not just to him but to his mum as well and I, I don't know that that is what World Cups are about because in the end I've spoken about this plenty in the last few days my 
connection to a World Cup as someone who's never played in one, watching one is family. Like that's what World Cups are about is the the family that you have and how you've spent your life experiencing your national identity and and sharing that with them is is all of it as far as I'm concerned. And they had brilliant performances all over the pitch, actually. I thought Bufal, who, you know, Premier League viewers will just will think he is such a sort of flat as to deceive footballer. But he he had some lovely moments in that game. Amrabat was brilliant. And Akim Ziyech, who in the previous game, John Hartson didn't even notice he was still on the pitch. And in this one, he was actually excellent throughout and then brilliant to set up the the second goal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean he's he's really instrumental to the way that they the way that they play and it's it's credit to to the new manager, Wally Rui, to have got him back in the side and yeah, he, but I mean, just yeah, throughout the team, it was it was really exciting to see how how they are gelling together, and they've got such a solid defence. I mean, Sice at the back is is a really commanding player. People remember him from the Premier League. Uh, you know, for many years at Wolves, he's, he's been a stalwart really. And uh, and and you mentioned Buffal. He's a very he's very much a street footballer, sort of the sort of player that mm. Moroccan fans you know really love. That you don't know what he's going to do. Very off the cuff. And he's he's always been very raw like that, and uh, Southampton fans probably don't have great memories of him apart from that amazing goal that he scored when he dribbled past off. I can't remember who it was against, but he, you know I think he was up there as one of the goals of the season. It was a wonderful goal, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. A but that's goal. that's the sort of talent that he's got, and Morocco. Yeah, I mean it's it's but it's all built on this very solid foundation, and that's the key to their success. And uh, yeah, that gives them a, a really good chance. I was just thinking as you said that about knowing someone's on the pitch. I think we were. A solid half hour into this game before the commentators realised that the Moroccan goalkeeper was not who they thought it was um, <laughs> because of that very bizarre situation before kickoff with Bono who was supposed to be starting and then clearly wasn't feeling well and, and so Munir Mohamedi comes in and yeah that was a it was a, a another little World Cup moment that happened in this one yeah it was funny I mean I forgive them yeah completely actually, because you know completely. as a com- commentary is as I think we all know as people who don't commentate but sort of know people who do or have been close to seeing them God, it's the hardest job in the game. And like, you'd be insane to even do it. I, I mean, they're a bit obsessed with telling, showing you all their notes. You don't need to do that. Just do the game. But I would forgive, I would forgive anyone not noticing somebody, considering they sang the anthem, right? They literally, the camera passed across their face and you go, right, that's that. I've learned who that is. You're unlikely to be across every Morocco player. And then suddenly they do that sort of subtle change. And I, I look, the, the, the replacement, he did really well, didn't he? It didn't, it didn't make any difference. Um, uh, on the subject of Courtois, Obviously, uh, given the hello, hello uh, uh, chat we had the other day, uh, thank you to Will, says Courtois has pissed up the opportunity to keep a, keep a clean shit today. <laughs> yes, uh, um, that will run, I'm sure, through, throughout this World Cup. Uh, he, he was at full, but but Ed, like Belgium were, Belgium were bad, and they were bad in the, in the, against Canada as well. Like they, they are so ponderous. Yeah, it's just a reflection, I think, of their age, isn't it? Everybody is it's just clear to see everybody, a lot of the. The stalwarts in their team are pretty old, especially at the back. I mean, to see Batongan still lining up, although he had, you know, he has his moments still a great, great defender at times, but obviously lacking a bit of pace. And and yeah, throughout the team, there's that sort of yeah creaking aspect to it, isn't there? And and Martinez looks a bit helpless as well. He was kind of didn't really know how to how to get them going when they when they went one 0 down. He looked pretty shocked. Um, even though it was Morocco were really on top. So, yeah, it's really worrying for them and they've got it all, all to do now against Croatia, who looks really fantastic. Hmm. I, I wonder, Nicky, if he's kind of like, we, we talked about, you know, Rob Page has to has to play Bale and Ramsey, but but Martinez probably doesn't have to play Eden Hazard, for example. And obviously, De Bruyne is still one of the best midfielders in the world. But like some of those old players, I don't know defensively sort of how deep their squad is. But you know, the players he brought on, like Trossard and Tielemans, are good and are playing well at the moment. Like, like he 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 could be braver, possibly. It's it's so weird with Belgium, isn't it? Like I was thinking to myself before, is like the FIFA World Rankings is basically cryptocurrency, isn't it? Like it's just something which has no actual <laughs> tangible yeah, value so that right. we've sort of decided, and certain things get hyped, and and there's there's some secret maths to it that no one actually understands. I think you know Kevin De Bruyne was was sort of blunt about it, wasn't he? Saying we're too old, we're not going to win the thing, and and that's how they look. And it is it's a bit tragic seeing Eden Hazard who we have all seen be a magnificent footballer and you think he can't beat a man, like he can't do anything, like he's not, he's got no dynamism to it at all. And you contrast that with Ziyech who, I mean, look, Morocco's tactics at 
significant part of this game seemed to be, you know, keep it tight, get it to Buffon and Ziyech and let them do something. And you think, well, that's a tactic that should work for the Belgian we imagine in our heads, right? Keep it tight and get the ball to to Hazard or De Bruyne and, and they'll make something happen for you. But Hazard particularly is, has not got that in him. And 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 you could go beyond um, those players as well. I mean, I, I think when you're talking about the choices uh, up front in this game, you've got Bacuayi coming on, you've got Lukaku coming on, you're thinking, where's where's a, a Penda who is a young player who's actually scoring goals and who actually has some sort of fizz about him at the moment? You're sort of calling on these players because they're their names. But I mean, look, Lukaku played a couple of decent games for Inter after he signed, but he's been injured most of the season. He's not someone who's coming in hot and 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 bristling and and looking like he's going to do something and the whole squad feels like that to be honest um and I think yeah it, I think De Bruyne probably had the right of it um when he said they're just they're just a bit too old it's actually a fascinating interview the Kevin De Bruyne interview with Simon Hatterston uh to which uh, Tin has written an email saying dear panel of the pod never been moved to email before thought Maybe you could shed some light on this perturbing topic for me. I enjoyed Simon Hattonstone's profile with Kevin De Bruyne in Saturday's Guardian. However, I don't think it's right that Hattonstone can't can just write, quote, he floats off to the fridge, takes out slices of white hovis, makes himself a mustard sandwich, heats up green soup and starts eating, and then just leaves it at that. So many follow-up questions have been circling around my <laughs> mind since reading it. Bread in the fridge, question mark. Millionaire athlete eating white hovis. <laughs> mustard sandwich. Anything else with the mustard. To be clear, green soup is fine. I'm not bothered about that. Anyway, if you have any more info or can ask some follow-up questions via your journalistic contacts, with either Hattonstone or De Bruyne, I'd be much obliged. A, a mustard-only sandwich, Ed. Yeah, I did, I did think that was odd. I wonder if he dipped the mustard in the soup, the mustard sandwich in the soup, maybe. Oh, right, maybe, okay. I so know. I guess... Maybe that's big in Belgium. Yeah, I mean, like, a soup and a toasty is quite a nice order, isn't it? Mm. And if you just... And sometimes if you had soup and then you perhaps just had a kind of mustard, instead of just plain bread just mustard but I also I was always certain you know since Arsene Wenger Nicky you know footballers don't eat white hovis anymore do they surely <laughs> surely that's off the that's off the menu isn't it I mean De Bruyne can do what he likes but yeah I mean I I think I think probably our puritanical ideas of footballers are slightly over the mark I think sometimes plenty of top flight footballers still sometimes sneak a slice of pizza here or there so a slice of yeah. white bread I reckon I reckon it can happen it's okay and what I mean if it's just mustard as well <laughs> I mean, you'd have to go whole grain, wouldn't you, for some texture? It couldn't be Coleman's. <laughs> like my nose wouldn't be able to cope with that. Um, I, 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 I don't know if you have any searing thoughts on Belgium, Ed. Apart from they're a bit old and they're probably lucky to still be in with a chance here, aren't they? Yeah, well, I, I think that they uh, they need to find a different way to play. That's probably the thing to say about them. I think that it, he's clearly struggling in this system that they play for so long as well under Martinez, and he's been there for for quite a while, hasn't he? You know. And pretty set in their ways. I think we, we could be looking at some sort of player revolution here, you know, like led by De Bruyne, you know, saying that how does how do we how can we play well to get a result against Croatia? Because that's what they need to do now, obviously, to get through. And I don't know what that might be, something a bit more attacking, perhaps with different personnel at the back. But yeah, certainly with what they're doing is not working. So um it's, it's pretty concerning. Given how old Belgium and Croatia are, it made me think that that game might be like the walking football episode of Father Ted, you know. But, <laughs> but look, to be fair, Croatia were really quite good, certainly as the game uh, went on against Canada. And we'll do that game in part three. If you're in need of a property insurance partner to help your business remain resilient, FM Global is the perfect choice. We employ science, data, and research to help assist you in making informed risk mitigation decisions. We will collaborate with you to identify and reduce risks linked to natural disasters while providing solutions that promote a more sustainable future. Let's prepare to prosper. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. So Group F looks like this after Croatia's 4-1 win 
uh, over Canada. Uh, they are top. Morocco second. They're both on four points. Belgium have three. Canada are out on zero points. Um, I thought this was a great game, Nikki. And actually, I, I wrote, as I was sort of doing it as the game was going, just fiddling with the script, saying both sides could have won it. And I wrote that in about the 60th minute. And now it feels like really only one side could have won it. But it felt sort of like the footballing version of the hare and the tortoise. I don't know if Canada could have won it when you sort of look at the, the 90 minutes in, in their totality. But there were definitely parts of the game when Canada w- were better. I mean, they started so, so well. Um, and, and that's classically sort of who they've been. That's the, the team they, they've they've aspired to be, this play on the front foot approach. Heard them, of course, but that we're going to F them. You know, that, that, that mindset. Like, I know there was a lot of talk about that. And of course, the tabloid in Croatia that then had him mocked up naked on the front cover and, and all of that. But actually, I think that mindset has been really important to how they've been and, and how they've got through qualifying and the identity of the team that he's built. And, and, and they came out true to themselves and they got that goal from Afonso Davis. And by the way, sort of like little sub note on this that I found fascinating. Canada had won the Davis Cup in tennis literally 10 minutes before that goal for the first time in their history. And then they scored their first men's World Cup game, first men's World Cup goal ever. And it was like a 10 minute period when Canadian um, sports history just got um, this huge Philip and it was amazing. But of course... And very Davis-based as well, wasn't it? Yes, exactly. From Davis to Davis. 10 minutes. Um, But um, obviously didn't last. but, But I... You know, I think when you sort of take a step back, Canada were, were quite naive. I mean, they were playing a four-four-two. That as the game went on, was more like a four-two-four. And, and one of your two in the middle is Atiba Hutchinson, who's fantastic footballer. Had a great career at Besiktas. Is you know, a few years ago, was still playing really, really high-quality football there, and an incredible sort of ball-retaining midfielder who doesn't waste pass. But he's thirty-nine now, and he's barely played this season, and putting him in a in a two against a Croatian three of Kovacic, Modric and Brozovic, it's it's not going to be easy. And I think that that was maybe the sort of subtlety that Canada needed that they lacked was having got that goal, which was amazing and brilliantly taken goal and, and really rocked Croatia for a little bit. It wasn't that they weren't capable of sometimes playing on the front foot because they did it again in the second half, but they weren't going to sustain that for 90 minutes and maybe there needed to be a bit more nuance to their game than that and just go, okay, we've got that goal now. Let's work out how we get solid and don't let this um, slip away from us. Yeah, um, Adam messaged me during the game quite early on saying a a Croatian fan sitting near us at the pub just said they're playing with no intensity, which I'm going to take as admitting they're finally tired, Max. (laughs) And then you think, yeah, they're finally tired, Ed. It's it's happened. And uh, that's what they do. And also, I mean, their goals are great. And like when you make sort of, sweeping statements about sides and then when you step back and you go well actually this Croatia team have so much talent in it don't they exactly I think that's I think that most there was a bit of a preconception about Croatia that they were also an aging side that were over the hill and you know we've seen the best of them at the last World Cup everything and Modric is can't carry them anymore but we saw today just how good they are in that that's that midfield area just unbelievable when they stepped up the intensity it was just unstoppable, wasn't it? You could see the goal coming and then they just didn't stop. And I think Kramaric was excellent today. Just people remember him at Leicester. He wasn't, you know, they played as a central striker and didn't obviously set the world on fire, but he was great. So much so that I'd completely forgotten he'd played for Leicester. Yeah, well, exactly. I don't think he was there for very long, but he, yeah, he, he came off, off from a wide position, links up really well. And and scored two great goals and yeah, but just throughout the team, uh, I forget the left, but Sosa the left left back was was really good, gave them another outlet and and they've just got a really deep pool of especially midfield players. It's amazing, really, the the population size in Croatia, uh, but they just produce so many great players. And Orsic came off the bench from Zagreb and laid on laid on the fourth goal. He was he's a really good player. I saw him playing against Chelsea earlier this season. And, you know, he's, he's a late bloomer, but that's just an example of the, the squad depth that they've got. So, yeah, Croatia just, you can't really write them off as well. They've got this indefat- indefatigable uh, spirit, haven't they, that in tournaments, it's really, they're really difficult to put to bed. And I think Canada maybe just didn't have the quality in the end to, to score a second goal and, and, and see them off. And actually, so much of the conversation so far this World Cup, Nikki, has been about you know, having the elite players in the elite moments. And I wouldn't necessarily put Cranwich as one of the best centre-forwards that's playing in this World Cup, but the way he took that goal, I mean, the pass from Perisic was perfect and his first touch, Cranwich, was just 
it was just an extra touch of class that has separated the teams that win these football matches and the teams that don't. Oh, definitely. And and like, I mean, Croatia could have had a few more in the end is, is what's sort of crazy about it. I think there was lots of candid well, but also the keeper ended up making some pretty good saves. And um, and and Cranbridge's goal was really well taken. I thought Levaya's goal was before half time was really, really well taken. And, and that's a, a striker who plays in Croatia, Vidic Split. And so not necessarily someone you who gets the recognition, gets thought of as top tier international talent. But I mean, he, he bangs them in for his club side. He's close to a goal again there I think and so he certainly comes into the tournament feeling confident feeling like he he knows what to do and and yeah I mean the strength of the team is still in midfield look Modric is getting on but he is one of the sort of greatest orchestrators of a generation Brozovic has been really tip-top for Inter the last couple of seasons this season a little bit of a setback before injury but driving force of the team that won the title under Conte uh, in Serie A and then yeah, your third your third man in that trio is Kovac is Kovacic, who I thought was probably the best of the three today. Um it's it's an exceptional midfield three. And um and I think that stands in Vegas in any matchup, but I think against a team that were naive, I think Canada were, were brilliant in some ways, but they were naive in the way they handled that midfield, thinking they could play man to man against a team like that. It it really opened up for them and and yeah, I think in the end Croatia's just superior quality was the difference here. I suppose from a Canadian point of view, Ed, and we've got lots of listeners in Canada, you know, so excited to be at their first World Cup. And I, I don't want this to sound patronising. They scored a goal, which they hadn't done, and that's really important. And also, they sort of brought the vibes, you know, like 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 there are teams that will get through to the last 16 or even the quarterfinals that will leave this tournament thinking, we didn't really do much. And in these two games, you really feel like Canada have kind of announced themselves and they're co-hosts of the tournament next time. And you're fascinated to see what happens with this squad. Definitely. And it's, and it's quite a young squad. and A lot to be excited about. And you're right. And they definitely made a mark. Um, it's just whether, uh, you know, they, they can keep producing players and getting them moved to Europe. I think that's that's the key, isn't it? Like getting more experience. Um, but there's, there's, there's certainly a lot to develop there. And obviously, in Davies, just an absolutely outstanding player. Just, I mean, the first half, especially, just blown away by his performance, just all over the pitch. Um, but yeah, and, and it'll be interesting to see if John Herdman wants to stay on as, as coach. Obviously, he caused a bit of controversy before the game uh, with his comments. But I think he's very, very good manager. And it, it's, it's a great challenge, of, you know, to lead them perhaps on home soil. It's quite a long way off. But I think he's he, he's definitely building something there. And it'd be good to see what they can, you know, now they've had a good experience of playing at this level and also, you know, they've, they've hardly played against European teams in, in the last few years. It's just been not not been possible. So perhaps in the build-up to the, the next World Cup, as you know, they're not going to have to qualify. They can get a bit more of that experience and they'll be, they could be quite forced to be reckoned with. Goldie says, isn't it exciting when your lower division club name is mentioned by a commentator in an international tournament? Mylot Redding. Uh, I've got two mentions. Got one in the first Iran game for a former player, four sub appearances in 1819, being on the bench, and got a mention because Junior Hoylet came on today. It, it, I, I cannot, I don't. Well, obviously, Cambridge United have got a mention because of Irv Renar, with people like tweeting me going, ah, oh, you idiots, you sacked this guy 18 years ago, and now look. And, and it like, was your okay, fault, Max. Well, you were the one who fired him. It was my fault. Well, actually, on that subject, um, somebody tweeted yesterday, uh, 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 there's that sort of footy mm. scram account, or scran, is it? I'm not sure. It was scram. Uh, uh, yeah, where, where they tweet food. And they, that someone had bought cheesy chips from the Abbey Stadium, and it was like some chips with like two craft cheese slices, and some ketchup <laughs> on it for three pounds fifty. And people are asking me, saying, "You know, you're responsible for this." I'm like, I didn't, I didn't make that. I didn't create that dinner. It's not for me. I would grate cheese on cheesy chips, really, if, if we're going to be honest. But I, I would, on behalf of Cambridge United, I apologise for sacking over in two thousand and four, and I apologise for the cheesy chips uh, that were served to Grimsby fans yesterday. Uh, just before we do any other business, um, Nikki, between recordings, you saw on the Men in Blazers Twitter, uh, also on the New York Times and elsewhere, some slightly disturbing scenes coming out of Belgium where riots have broken out after uh, the country's 2-0 defeat to Morocco today. Police have reportedly had to seal off parts of Brussels city centre. We don't know all the details yet, so we'll discuss that uh, on a later pod. Uh, also worth noting that you know England fans... And Wales fans started having a fight in Tenerife. I mean, I imagine fights happen in Tenerife anyway. 
you know, if my memory of going to Tenerife in 1996 is anything, I didn't partake in any of the fights. Uh, but yeah, like, nice to know that they've found something to do over there. Um, meanwhile, Lionel Messi to MLS. The Times are reporting that Inter Miami are close to signing Lionel Messi. It'll make him the highest paid player in the history of MLS. He needs the money. Sergio Busquets also very closely linked as well. Is Ryan Shawcross still there? I really hope so. Shawcross behind Busquets and then Messi in front of them is tremendous. Mikey says, with Messi possibly going to Phil Neville's into Miami, who are the other worst managers to have coached great players? I I, I can't instantly think of, I don't know, Ornick, if you have any that spring to mind. I think this is a really uncharitable one, actually. I think there's like probably not fair at all, but in my head all that came up was Bruce Riach briefly managing Dennis Burkamp before Arsene Wenger did. Yeah. Riach was sort of treated as the cone man at Arsenal, wasn't he? Which I think was probably slightly unfair given other things he'd done in his career, but that's the one that came into my head when you asked the question. Ed, you got anything? Well, not, uh, no one in specific, but anybody managed by Gary Megson, maybe. <laughs> that's, just, that's, just, that's just basically name a manager you don't think is any good. No. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure he did manage some wonderful players. Um, uh, Chris says, uh, look, you perhaps quite rightly a, a vocal critic of Newcastle United, although when Cambridge get the gig, it's great. Not true, Chris. If a state with dubious human rights record bought Cambridge United, I would walk away. Will it be worth mentioning the 28,000 crowds that Newcastle's women's game got? A record, by the way. Absolutely. And that's actually, Nicky, it's one of those sort of difficult things when we're trying to sort of wade our way through the complexities of football. It's a bit like we're saying, you know, the trouble with Qatar and then the fact that, you know, fans from around that area can go. There are positives and negatives to everything. And the fact that Newcastle women are getting so such a big crowd at St. James's Park is fantastic in itself. Absolutely, yeah. And that doesn't have to be treated as a gotcha. Like it's just a fantastic thing that's happening. And uh, that and their ownership are are two issues that can be discussed without having to conflate them. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, Aidan says uh, on a slightly different subject, on footballers and a fragrance, my wife sat beside Graham Souness on a flight once and she texted me immediately to tell me he smelt lovely. The name of the aftershave remains unknown. Thank you, Aidan. And uh, a nice email we'll finish with from David Thomas, who says, Hi, Max and everybody. I think listening to you daily, um, you've seeped into my brain. I dreamt I was sharing an office with you, Max, the other night while you were struggling to write the pod intro. In real life, I have a pile of papers next to my desk on the floor, which, while looking untidy, are quite important. You had tidied up and thrown them out, much to my uh, chagrin. Annoyed, I went for a walk and found out that we were in New York. And as I walked the streets of the Big Apple, cursing your desire for order, Cliff Richard rode right past me on his bike. But then I woke up and went to work. Keep up the good work on the pod. Please keep out of my dreams. Yours, David in Luxembourg. Um, I, I think this has happened before in major tournaments. There's just too much. Uh, there's too much of my voice specifically and probably too much of Barry's as well. Uh, but, you know, uh, if you have dreamt about us, feel free to get in touch. Football Weekly at theguardian.com. And that'll do for today. Thank you, Ed. Thanks, Max. Thank you, Nikki. Thanks, Max. Thank you both for bothering to stay for the whole podcast. It, you know, it makes me <laughs> feel better. It's really like hosting people for dinner. And Sid just says, I'm only staying for one drink. And Archie says, I'll piss off after 20 minutes. At least you bothered to stay for the whole thing. It's greatly appreciated. Do we get an after eight minute now? <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Christian Ben. This is The Guardian. 